welcome to RUF. You know, RUF is a place where everybody belongs, Christians, non-Christians. We're a Christian ministry, and we're here to help you explore what it means to follow Jesus, whether you've been doing that for years and years, or you're on the fence, or like you did it for a while in middle school, and like you kind of stopped, um, or you've never even considered it before. We're here for you. I'm here for you. Anna and everyone in this room, really, um, there's a lot of people here that would love to talk to you about like the difference Jesus has made in their lives. So I would love to do that. Come talk to me afterward if you'd like to have that conversation. Um, but, you know, my name is Willis Weatherford. I'm the campus minister here. Uh, and I'm not a good person, but Jesus loves me. And he loves you. And that changes things. You know, because he loves me, Jesus is actually showing me who I was made to be. Because he loves us, Jesus actually shows us who we were made to be. And he's making us into that person. He's showing us our identity, our true identity. And he's making us into that person. He wants us to see that tonight. He wants us to glimpse that tonight. So uh, my daughter, Juniper, wonderful little four and a half year old. Juniper, when she was maybe like two, three, she kind of like came up with this alter ego in a non-creepy way, uh, which she called Dog Dog. And uh, Dog Dog, uh, not that hard to guess, is a dog. And Juniper loves dogs. And so when Juniper turns into Dog Dog, she hits all fours, of course. And she kind of like, she turns her hands into like paws, kind of. And she just does what dogs do. And she like, she doesn't talk. You know, she only like pants or barks and stuff. <laughs> and if I like fail to recognize that she's being dog dog, she'll be like, Daddy, I'm dog dog. I'll be like, oh, okay, okay. And then I'll start treating her like a dog and petting her on the head and giving her like a bowl of water on the floor to drink out of. And she loves it, you know. And actually it's like, it's great because if I want her to like do something, it's like, Juniper, it's time to go to bed. She's like, I don't really feel it right now, Dad. Like, Juniper, does dog dog want to go to bed? She's like, <laughs> like goes to bed. So it's like, it's super cute. It's wonderful. But it's also a little eerie because as a father, like as an adult, I'm not like that good at imagining anymore. But Juniper and children are like, you know, the best imaginers ever. Pretend is like the reality kind of. And in the moment when she's dog dog, like she kind of thinks she's a dog, you know, like there's a little bit of reality there. And she wants other people to see her and treat her as a dog too. So it's a bit of a switch here, stretch, but follow me. Who do you see yourself as? Probably not a dog. If it's a dog, talk to me later. We need to talk. <laughs> but who do you see yourself as? And how do you want others to see you? You know, we, we know our culture is obsessed with this concept of identity, you know, like identity politics, gender identity. I'm not here to like tweet out some hot takes on those hot button issues right now. We all have opinions on that. We can talk about that later if you want. But tonight, I don't want us to talk about a topic or the, you know, give you like some kind of hard line position on any of those things. I want us to talk about, I want you to glimpse the glory, the beauty, the strength of your identity in Christ. So that who you are and who you see yourself to be will be forever changed. So where we're going to go tonight, our identity in crisis our identity in Christ, and our identity in action. Identity in crisis, identity in Christ, and our identity in action. And that last point, identity in action, it's all application. How do our lives look different because of this? 
It's going to be all about romance and relationships. Happy Valentine's Day. I hope you enjoy it. So look forward to that. That's coming. Um, before you get started, let's pray. Father God, we ask that tonight you would help us to glimpse the revelation of who we are in you. How you catch us up into yourself and make us something more than we could ever be on our own. Jesus, just give us eyes to see the beauty of that. And I pray that you would use that to transform the way even we pursue romantic relationships. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I know I just said all that, but I have to make like, I just really got to read the passage. So I'll do that. And then I'm going to do like a little explanatory moment on one of the things this passage talks about, which is the millennium. Okay, so um, I guess I'll just, where's the program? Here we go. So this is Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. For those of you who have been paying attention, this is skipping way ahead in the book of Revelation. We were like in Revelation, I think, 10 last week. I wanted you to see what this passage says before we go to Revelation 12 through 14, which is trippy and scary, okay? And before we go through like 16 through 19, which talks about like the final judgment, which is also kind of scary. We need to see our identity in Christ before we go there. So skipping ahead... Here's the passage. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority, the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, okay. Uh, Anna told me I have to click my own slide here, so let's see if this works. There it is. Okay. I made you guys a diagram. Okay, note, it's like made of four TVs, so there's a black line. Ignore the, you know, central black lines. This is a little geeky, <laughs> but it's hopefully helpful to help you understand what I think this passage is talking about when he says a thousand years. Okay, so six times in the chapter of Revelation 20, three in our passage, he refers to a thousand years. And listen, I'll just say up front, there's some debate about this, like what this thousand years is referring to exactly when it happens, all of that. Christians who love Jesus disagree about this. That's okay. So if like you hear what I say and you've read the Bible and you're like, I actually kind of disagree about that. That's okay. I'm not going to look at you weird, right? So but I'm just going to tell you my opinion about this. And, um, you know, I'm not alone here. This is the most anciently accepted perspective. It's been around since like the 200 AD. But I think... This thousand years is referring to the entire span of time between Jesus' resurrection and his return, his second coming. So if you look up on the diagram, there's the cross on the left. That's representing Jesus' life, death, resurrection. And then that line just kind of continues forward all the way to a point in our future when Jesus' is second coming and at the same time the dead are raised and at the same time the final judgment happens. Okay, so that's what I'm saying is, I believe that you should think, like I do, that the thousand years in this passage refers to 
the whole time between Jesus rising from the dead and when he comes back. So like we're living in the millennium right now. So like if you want to geek out and like dig more into that, it's actually super interesting and it helps us understand like how to read the Bible. You can watch the video that I posted. It's 17 minutes long. It's on the link tree. Scan the bottom right QR code. I'd love to talk to you about that if you have other questions. But for now, I'm just going to kind of move on past because there's something more important about our passage that I want us to see. Okay, so what I want us to see, what I want us to focus on, and actually I'm going to like, I'm going to kill this so we're not distracted. Boom. Okay. Um, our identity is in crisis. What, what, how do we face issues, struggles with our own identity? I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So in this vision John is having, he sees the non-bodily selves, the souls of people. He sees the souls of Christians who have died. So their, their bodies are still on earth, in the grave, whatever, but their souls are um, somewhere else. And he, he sees them. Okay, we're going to talk more about that in a second. But who he sees is two categories of people, and they're actually like the same. Uh, martyrs, so Christians who had been killed specifically because they were Christians, but also those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. This is referring back to a passage that we haven't talked about yet in Revelation 13, which represents this beast, not like a big scary animal that shows up on the world, um, but actually the false philosophies and religions of the world. That's the beast, okay? So for the original audience, these churches in Turkey, um, the beast would have been like the Greek pantheon, the Greek religious system, uh, which was hugely influential, not just in like religious life, but in like economic life, or the Roman imperial cult, which was like emperor worship. And that was something that just like all Romans kind of had to do as citizens. That would have been their beast, okay? The, the beast that wanted them to pay homage and worship. Not really our issue, right? Like that is not something that we face on a daily basis. The false philosophy we swim in, I mean, there's lots of them, right? But the most dominant one, I would argue, is kind of the pseudo-religion of secular humanism. You know, which is that you belong to yourself. God's pretty much irrelevant. Believe, him if, believe in him if you want, but like doesn't really matter because he's not really real. Um, your life is yours to make of it whatever you can kind of manage um, and then, you know, do the best you can until you die, at which point you can like have an afterlife of your choice or maybe nothing, but whatever, because it doesn't really matter. Because what really matters is like here now, that's secular humanism. That's the beast of our age. The Christians are those in our passage here. The Christians are those who had not worshipped, devoted themselves, given their best to this beast, to this false ideology. Right? And then from a different angle, it says they hadn't received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, which is kind of interesting and weird. Like, what's it talking about? Is it like a brand? I've heard some people talk about like the identity chips that like you might have to put in your wrist at some point in the future, conspiracy theory type stuff. Um, I think what's actually going on here, um, every religion, every ideology, every philosophy encourages external identity markers of some sort. Right? So let's think about it in our, like, in our world. Secular humanism really encourages certain external markers like wealth, influence, power, charity work, um, making your privilege known and repenting of it, um, 
like making your victimhood known and using it as a platform, these external markers really matter, like in our world. So what external markers do you wear to tell the world who you are? Is it your planner, your calendar, a magnificent color-coded testament to the power, to the prove to you and your classmates that you have what it takes to have your act together, to succeed, to conquer every class, every assignment? Is that your external marker that you're really proud of? You know, you're, you're kind of proud when you open it up and people see like how organized you are. That's never been me, but if that's you, you know, you know who you are. Is it your social calendar maybe? You know, like your friend group, the people that you get to hang out with. Is it a carefully engineered monument to your worth, popularity, influence, your social clout, showing everyone who knows you that you're the sort of person who just belongs with the best? It's like, this is just who I belong with. This is my kind of people. I'm just as good as them. Is your body, the way you look, the things you do to look that way, the things that you wear, is it like a gold medal around your neck to show the world that you're in control? You can be who you want to be. You can look how you want to look. You're worth loving, you're powerful, you're attractive, and everyone should want to be with you. So there's a thousand more. Um, what is yours? What is the external marker that comes to mind even now that like you like people seeing that because you want to be known as that way? These tendencies are evidence of an identity crisis. People who know who they are, people who actually know who they are, they don't have to show off who they are. They don't have to get somebody else to recognize who they are, right? They don't have to prove it to themselves because they just know. But we don't know. We're having a crisis here. I think, though, honestly, some of us have lived for so long, like just in this pattern of life, that we don't even recognize it anymore. We don't even notice that we do these things. So maybe you hear what I'm saying, and you're like, I'm not really getting what you're saying. Okay, so let me just present to you an alternative lifestyle so that we can kind of like compare our lives to it and be like, oh yeah, they're both kind of, so here we go. Um, for a couple summers, don't judge me. For a couple summers, I lived what I would say is on the fringes of dirtbag climber culture. Raise your hand if you have any idea what a dirtbag climber culture is. A few people, okay. So like, you, you guys have probably rock climbed in your life. Okay, so uh, this film is made about this dirtbag climber culture is this subculture where of people who believe that rock climbing is the best and most fulfilling thing in life, period, okay? Um, and in this ideology, climbing harder and having more fun while climbing is just the path to fulfillment. It just is, right? And so these people live to climb. Um, nice clothes, new climbing gear, committed relationships are all distractions from climbing and should be like rejected uh, so these people do things like dumpster dive to get food so they don't have to like work and instead can just climb, right? These people um, <laughs> go into restaurants and steal free like crackers so that they can like eat them instead of like having to buy food. Um, buying clothes exclusively from Goodwill. You know some of you have done it out there. You know you've done it. Uh, buying clothes exclusively from Goodwill instead of spending money on clothes. Showers are definitely optional. Living out of a tent or a van is a key strategy, okay? Um, also, having parents who like fund your adventures is very helpful. Okay, so um, that sounds crazy to some of y'all. Like, you just can't go anywhere in life. Why would you do that? That's nuts. But guys, you sound totally crazy to them. Totally crazy. 
They're like, how could you do that? How could you just like study all day and like work towards some future goal but have like a not fulfilling life in the moment? Like that's so crazy. You look just as crazy to them as they look to you. If you judge those people for being losers who can't hack it in real life, it's just proof that you've drunk a different Kool-Aid than they have. But it's still Kool-Aid. It's still believing that you belong to yourself and that who you are is like up to yourself to define and to project out into the universe. So you can trade van life for Wall Street life, climbing shoes for Italian leather shoes, Goodwill for Gucci. It's just two different sets of external markers that you use to project who you want to be out into the world. And Revelation is saying both sets are marks of the beast. You don't want to have it on you. Our identity is in crisis because we look to external markers to tell us who we are. We put on external markers to show others who we are. We could talk all night, you guys. We could, I could sit down with every single one of you in this room and we could have a conversation about the masks that we wear, the things that we do, and how it's wreaking havoc in your life. And how like the person that people think that you are is not the person that you know yourself to be inside and how you actually are having a hard time figuring out who you are inside because you've like kind of believed the lie of what you've projected to the world. That's just the way we are. We're having an identity crisis. And the good news of the gospel in Revelation 20 is that your true identity, like the action, not like a thing that you can maybe get someday, but your tr the true core of you, the core identity of yourself is kept. It's safe. It's protected somewhere else entirely. It's not in you. <laughs> It's definitely not in these external markers that we put on. Your identity is in Christ. It's in Christ. So let's look at that. Second main point here, our identity in Christ. It says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the Christians. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Remember the diagram? From the entire time from when they died to when Jesus comes again, they are spiritually resurrected, sitting with Christ on the throne, and they reign with him. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, quick summary. Just so like, I know it's a lot. This is talking about what we call going to heaven. This is what we mean when we say going to heaven. Okay, when Christians die, our souls immediately go to be with Jesus and stay there with him continually until he comes again. At which point, he comes back, and our physical bodies are raised from the ground to be reunited with our spiritual souls and live like that for all eternity with Jesus. That's what happens to Christians. Okay, So the first resurrection this passage talks about is when the soul of a Christian goes to be with Jesus, the moment of death. And then the second death that it talks about that has no power over Christians, that's the spiritual death. That's hell. This is saying those who are raised with Christ when they die, they don't have anything to fear from hell. They're good. They are totally good because they've been raised with Christ. Okay, I think you get it. So, this is good news. It's like, okay, Christians get to be raised with Christ, don't have to fear hell. That's really good news. But it can feel a little theoretical. Like, okay, maybe one day that will matter in my life, but I'm still alive. You know, you're not dead yet, which is good. So, like, uh, what does this matter now? This passage is actually talking about a reality that has everything to do with our daily lives. Okay, so the reality behind this passage the reason, the reality behind you being raised with Christ as soon as you die 
is the same reality as the reality behind our conversion, the reality behind living like Jesus did every day, the reality behind belonging in God's family, the reality behind having the righteousness of Christ now and our sin paid for by him on the cross, and the reality behind living forever with physical bodies in this world made new when Jesus comes back. All these things are rooted in this reality called being united with Christ. United with Christ. Which I think is probably the most important thing the Bible teaches that most Christians have no idea what it is. So listen up here, guys. Union with Christ is pictured in like a lot of passages. I'm going to go through just three right here. Uh, Galatians 2 says, I, Christian, have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Romans 6. Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Ephesians 2. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him. Past tense. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's going on here? Why is the Bible talking about all these things as if like what happened to Jesus also happened to us, also happened to Christians. It's saying you were crucified with Christ and you were raised from the dead with Christ and you've already been raised into heaven with Christ. Why is it saying this? It's because 1 Corinthians six seventeen, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What does this talk about? Okay, is, I've done this with some of you guys. Hand demonstration. Okay, this is you, dead in your sin. You can't do anything. You can't grab onto God. You can't like float through the ether to find God. You're just dead in your sin. Here comes the Holy Spirit and gets you. Okay, this is a picture of salvation. This is the moment of conversion. This is what conversion is. The Holy Spirit comes and unites you with Christ. And he wakes you up. Now you can grab onto him. Now you can do stuff. You can do what Jesus did. Like, that's awesome. But the core reality of being a Christian is when the Holy Spirit comes and unites you to Christ. Another illustration. So my mom, awesome lady. Shout out to Janie Weatherford. Uh, my mom, uh, her friend needed a kidney, right? And so my mom went in to get tested to see if she could donate a kidney to her friend. Wasn't a match. But my mom, being my mom, who's loved Jesus for a long, long time and is getting more and more like Jesus, was like, I'm just going to donate it to somebody, you know, who needs it. And so she waited and waited and waited. And then she got the call that like somebody needs your match. Somebody, you know, needs your kidney. And so she goes in. They take out her kidney. You have two kidneys, so like she's, you know, it's fine. It's possible. Um, take out her kidney, give it to this person. This person gets a new lease on life. Um, you know, my mom is in recovery for two weeks. Um, and now some other person has my mom's kidney walking around in the world. It's odd, right? <laughs> like, everything my mom's kidney's been through, now like their kidney has been through that. And this is kind of a picture of what happens at the moment of your conversion. Okay, this is the, the comfort that God wanted to reveal to these early Christians in Turkey, that he wants to reveal to us today. It's like, at the moment of your conversion, Jesus put his heart in you, and now everything that ever happened to his heart, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension into heaven, it's happened to your heart. Put it a different way. In the moment of your conversion, Jesus relocates you in him. It's like he just stitches you to the side, like, all right, now you're with me, and everything that I've been through, you've been through. You're identified with Christ. 
This is the comfort God wants us to see when we're under pressure to find and locate our identity and project our identity through these external markers that we grab onto. Don't miss what this is saying, guys. The reason dead Christians reign spiritually with Jesus when we die is because they were already, at the moment of their conversion, before they died, they were already united with Christ, crucified with Him, resurrected with Him, ascended into heaven with Him. That's just their life story now. This means that your identity, listen up, guys, your identity is something so much more magnificent and dynamic and worth discovering and living into than most of you have ever dreamed. Most of you feel like your identity is some future thing. That like, if you do enough cool stuff or like you start a cool business or you start some awesome charity, or, you know, if I have an awesome career, whatever, that like then you'll kind of eventually discover like, oh, like this is who I am, cool. And then you'll feel like satisfied and fulfilled. This is saying actually, your identity is already way cooler than you ever imagined. <laughs> it's the identity of Jesus. And now you get to live that out for the rest of your life. So there's stuff to discover, but it's not something you create for yourself. It's something Jesus already made for you. It's like this treasure chest buried in a field. Jesus buys the field, and then he, he brings like the title or whatever of the keys of the field, hands it to you and says, hey, you're a field now. Let's go find that treasure. You may have heard people talk about finding your identity in Christ. It's kind of like spiritual ease or whatever. Uh, it kind of makes it sound like your identity is something you have to like go looking for to like find it. But listen up. If being a Christian means literally being united with Christ, your identity isn't something you have to look for. Your identity is someone who came looking for you, grabbed a hold of you, and stuck you to himself forever. And this changes the way you see yourself. You're worthy in Christ. You are strong in Christ. You are dead to sin. You already died. Death can't hurt you anymore. You are alive to righteousness. Does that feel a little bit far off and theoretical? Yes, it still does, right? But it's worth like digging into, leaning into. How do we do that? This happens as we, by the Holy Spirit's power, as we like live this out, as we live out the life of Jesus in our lives. So how do we do that? What's that look like? Point three, relationships, okay? I promised it. Romance, Valentine's Day. Here we go. What difference does this make to our romantic relationships? Okay, so first one, your God is a God who loves. He did all this for you because he loves you. You think he wants to spend eternity with somebody stuck to him beside him on the throne that he doesn't feel totally crazy about? No, he loves you. Christians love people. So this doesn't just talk about romantic relationships. It is that, but it's more than that. Friendships, family, your enemies, Christians love. So we got it, y'all. We got to be people who are drinking from the fire hose of the love of Jesus so that we can leak that out toward other people. Leak sounded weird. Maybe like a pipe conduit. I don't know. You know what I'm saying, though. Like We need the love of Jesus so that we can spread that love to others. And love well, love boldly. Take people on dates. You know, be brave. Your love life, your relationship, your marriage doesn't depend on you being attractive enough, having the right external markers to win the right to like be married to somebody, to date somebody. Actually, <laughs> God has marked out the person for you to marry. So go find him. Love boldly. Venture boldly. Ask God on a date, you know? So, love people. Second thing. This one might be less popular. <clears throat> okay, so Christians should only romantically pursue other Christians. 
Christians should only romantically pursue other Christians. Listen, get to know who you want to get to know. Uh, flirt with that girl in econ, that guy in Orgo. Do that, that's fine. <laughs> Take people out on a, a date. That's fine. Like, I'm not saying you have to like, do a bunch of research and be like, is this person a tried and true Christian before you go out on a date with them, right? But, but like, the moment you realize someone is not following, Christ, uh, following Jesus, second, third date, whatever it is, if you realize that, turn your attention elsewhere. Okay? Why? It's an issue of trajectory. There's so much we could say. Uh, come back in a few weeks. We're going to talk about Eros, Mitch Logos, all about relationships. But from our passage, it's an issue of trajectory, right? So like trajectory, you're on different trajectories. Um, on the negative side, if you are being led to heaven, if you're becoming more and more like Jesus, you're united with him, this other person who's not a Christian, that is not true of them. Maybe God will save them at some point, but we don't know, right? As you go farther and farther in relationship, you're going to get farther and farther apart, and it's going to feel worse and worse. Don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to somebody else. On the positive side, imagine two people, and like, there's one, and there's the other, Billy and Susie. And they're kind of far apart because they don't know each other that well, but they start getting kind of attracted to each other, and that's cool. They're moving towards, it, towards each other. And if they're both moving towards Jesus at the same time, and they're becoming, both of them, more and more the person who they were made to be, that's a good picture of a relationship, you guys. Like, that is a foundation for a solid relationship. So, first date, second date, you got to ask, y'all, like, what's your relationship with Jesus like, you know? What difference has he made in your life? How important is obeying him to you? Not like the easy, like, are you a Christian? Okay, check the box, walk away. Like, never ask about it again. <laughs> like, dig in a little bit and try to get a sense here. This is not because Christians are better than other people. We're not. We're just not. Okay? This is because Jesus has a plan for your life, and if they are not following Jesus, it's a different plan. Okay. Um, if they're not following Jesus, don't pursue them. And if you're dating someone who's not a Christian right now, I don't say this lightly, guys. I know this is a big deal. I'm just going to tell you, you got to break up. you got to break up with them. Okay, text me or call me if I've offended you, if you have a situation you want to talk through. That's what this passage is saying. Next application. Uh, Christians, this is the final one, guys. Christians treat their own and others' bodies with reverence. I love this, you guys. Reverence for the body. Revelation 20 speaks of being united with Christ, which means the physical resurrection of our bodies from the grave. Every person you will ever see, interact with, talk to, work alongside, shake hands with, hold hands with, tackle on the football field, kiss, have sex with, each of those people lives in an eternal body that will one day be raised from the dead. Maybe to be raised to glory with Christ forever. Your own body will rise from the grave to be made new. But it's still going to be your body. It's not going to be like, you know, wipe the slate clean, totally new. But it's still your body. To some of you, that sounds like bad news. You're like, I'm kind of tired of this body. would like to have a new one. Brand's making new. You're sick of your body, your illness, the way you look, what's happened to your body. But listen when I tell you, Jesus loves it. He loves your body. I know it's got to sound weird because like our, our way of thinking about the body is weird, but Jesus just loves your body with a pure and good love. That's why he's going to resurrect it. He gave it to you on purpose. He loves your body, your mind, all of you, and he treats it with reverence. This is good enough to salvage 
and to make new for all eternity. So let's treat each other that way too, you guys. This touches our relationships with caffeine and sugar, with disordered eating, with our workout plans, our workout methods, with substance use, alcohol, drugs, prescription medication even. It touches on our interactions with other people, how we look at their bodies online, in person, how we talk about their bodies, who we interact with based on how they look. It touches on our sexuality. Your body's not an object to be used as a means to an end for yourself or someone else. If you've treated it that way, treated someone else that way, if someone else has treated you that way, I'm sorry. You know, like I know there's a lot of pain there. And I just want to let you know, Jesus has something better for you. And the story that you have written and others have written for you around your body is not the end of the story. There's nothing that's happened in your life. And I know that terrible things have happened to a lot of y'all. There's nothing in there that Jesus doesn't look on and redeem and say, I'm making all things new. I'm wiping every tear from your eyes. Your body is a physical foretaste of the coming of the kingdom of God, destined for glory, and even now, spiritually united with Christ. So God's plan, just to reiterate this, God's plan for your sexuality is clearly defined in Scripture. That's intimidating, can be offensive, but it's also super good. It's like freeing. It's good for sex. It's good for love, good for romance, good for dating, good for marriage, good for people. Treat your bodies with reverence. Jesus does. He's going to raise it from the dead because he loves you. So Jesus has met us in our identity crisis to unite us with him and give us an identity in Christ so that we can live that out with one another and in our romantic relationships. Let's do that this week. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, uh, man, it's a lot to bite off and chew on. But Jesus, I ask, Lord, that you would help us move out into the world as people who love like you love, who love boldly. Love our friends, love our boyfriends, girlfriends, love our spouses one day, love our families. Help us to love like you love us, Jesus. Help us to dignify and revere our own bodies, our own selves, the bodies and selves of others, knowing that your purposes for us are eternal. So Jesus, help us to walk out of here knowing that we're loved by you and that love never fades, never fails. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.